Okay, 12.30 on the dot. So, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I hope it was filled with lots of food and family and friends and calories, and all the things that we love. So we have this week and next week, and then we're done for the year. So next week is the last week. If you have friends and they've said, oh, I want to come try that Ruth's Christmas, tell them, next week, last chance for this year. Uh, bring them, let's fill this place out, let's end the book of Numbers on a bang. We'll start back December 9th. Um, January 9th. Nope, December. We're going to take a whole year off. I'm kidding. January 9th. We'll start back. So that's the second week in January. Uh, so we have a long holiday. During the holiday time, the best thing that you could do to get ready is read the book of Deuteronomy. Because that's where we're headed next. And, well, I won't say anything more about that. Just read Deuteronomy over the break. Um, Deuteronomy was one of the books that was closest to Jesus' heart. And it's one of the books that, in fact, every time he was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. Um, so read it. And if you're looking for a commentary to help you get through, there's a lot of good ones out there and there's a lot of sorry ones out there. Beware. Um, the one that I would recommend the most for anybody's level, not scholarly, not technical, is the one by Christopher Wright. Uh, W-R-I-G-H-T, and it's Deuteronomy commentary. It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You can read it like a devotional. It's that good. <clears throat> but we're not in Deuteronomy yet. We've still got some final business to finish in numbers. Israel, if you recall, they've been camped on the plains of Moab. So that'd be here. Modern Israel, kind of over here. So they're in what would be today Jordan. Right across from Jericho. And they're going to enter into the promised land uh, headed east. All right, so they're going to come in, uh, headed west. They're going to come in from the east and enter into the land. Before they got there, though, two and a half of the tribes said, hey, we kind of like it here on this side of the Jordan. Can we stick around? And it was almost, we thought it was going to be some rebellion because that is what sent Israel wandering for 40 years before. Moses flipped his lid and just went off on them. And then they said, no, 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 we're not saying we want to stay. We're saying we want our families to stay here. We'll go help take the land. We'll fulfill our commitments. But then when it's all said and done, we will give up our inheritance on that side and we'll come back over on this side of the Jordan. And so they agreed to do that as sort of a compromise. And that's how Israelites settled in what's called the Transjordan area. So next May, by the way, we're going to take a trip to Israel. Those of you that want to come, we got about 10, 12 spots open. We're going to go see Israel proper. We're going to see what's today the West Bank, Palestine. And then we're going to end the trip by going to the Transjordan. And we're going to actually fly home from Jordan. So three countries all in one trip. If you're interested in that, let me know because it's the cheapest trip you will ever find to that region. And so they settle in the Transjordan. But then the armies of Israel are going to go into and take the land of Canaan, which is what God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. So that's where they're headed. Everything's in fulfillment of what's been going on for, in our study, four years now. In their time, 40-something, actually 400 years, uh, going all the way back to Genesis. So before, the, the, they have to do some final prep before they can enter into the land. One of the things they're going to do is they're going to look back. And this is really important. This chapter 
chapter 33. This is the chapter people skip because it's boring and it's place names that you don't know. Uh, it's understandable when you see a list of names that you don't know. It's like looking at pictures of other people's vacation. You just, you don't care. You weren't there. You don't know the names. It's really boring. You just want to get ahead to it. And, and if you do care, bless you. But most of the time we don't, uh, if we're honest. And that's kind of how we are in this chapter. We're like, I don't care. I don't know, I don't know where these places are. Where's Dopeco? Where's Alush? You know, I don't even know what Rithma is and Ramon Perez. What do these names mean? Why do I care? Important to remember that these lists were given for Israel as a testament to what God did. So when they look back at these places, this list, this section, first of all, structurally, there's some interesting stuff going on. There's 42 destinations. So there's where they started, and there's where they end up right now, and in between, there's 40 destinations. How long is Israel wandering? 40 years in the wilderness. So this list is... St- now, did it mean they spent a year at each place? No. Some places they spent more than a year, some places less. It's not exhaustive. There's places that we know they stopped that aren't on this list. Lists and genealogies in the Bible are rarely exhaustive. Whether it's names of the genealogies of Cain or uh, you know, in Genesis, or whether it's lists here, or whether it's the genealogies in Chronicles, or Matthew... Luke, or or even Paul's list of spiritual gifts, none of them are exhaustive. They're almost always samplings or structurally put in a certain way, like Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. It's three sections, and each section corresponds to a period in Israel's history, and they're laid out structurally, and we know that Matthew skipped some generations to make that pattern fit. Because it wasn't like Ancestry.com, where you're trying to find every single person in the line, Uh, Well, this isn't like MapQuest, where you're trying to find every single spot on the map. Rather, this is a summary of where they've been, set up in a way that kind of commemorates this 40-year wandering. And it's also structurally six lists with seven destinations in each list. Implication being, the seventh has not yet arrived. They're not yet done. There's one more destination that remains, one more leg of this journey, the seventh, which is what? Entering into God's rest, the land of Canaan. So thematically, this chapter has some pretty cool uh, structural elements, but then also it gives Israel kind of an overview of what they've been through for the past 40 years. We lose that. We kind of lose that sometimes. I'll be 40 next year. As long as I've been alive, they've been in the desert. That's some perspective on it. I mean, if you think about it, that's a long time. So this whole generation, everybody 20 years and younger, all they know is the wilderness. All they know, this is who they are as a people. They have no memory of Egypt. Some of them, the older ones do. All they know is we've wandered in the desert. Why? Because of their parents' disobedience. Because their parents rejecting what God wanted to bless them with. So this is their history led in these stages or presented in these stages. And chapter 33 says, here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. By divisions is literally to their armies in Hebrew. Sava'oth, the army. They came out as armies. Now the irony in that is they came out as what? Slaves. Freed slaves. A mixed multitude even came with them. But they were a rabble. They were just... There was no army. They came out of the place that had the greatest army in the history of the world up to that point. They weren't an army. They were just this collection of tribal 
400 years of slavery. Remember, they had been slaves longer than America's been around. So think about this in terms of national identity and what this means for a people. They are getting a national identity through all these books that we've followed them these past four years. They're forming their identity. (coughs) So when, verse 2, at the Lord's command, Moses recorded or wrote down, literally, the stages in their journey. Uh, And literally, it's their comings and their goings. (laughs) That's literally what he wrote. When they come, where they went. God says, write this down. This is their journey by their stages. So the first section is where they start. The Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after Passover. They marched out boldly in full view of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Two and a half years ago, or two years ago, if you were here, this was what we looked at in Exodus. Exodus 12 is, is specifically what happened here. But this is the beginning of their journey. He didn't trace it all the way back to Abraham. This is, this is talking about them as a collective people now. Not the patriarchs' ancestors, but as a people, their history somewhat begins, their national history begins in Egypt as slaves. But he doesn't say it begins as slaves. In this case, he says that elsewhere. All over it says, you know, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's everywhere. They know that. This section has a triumphal looking forward aspect, even while it's looking backwards, because it says brought him out by their armies, which now they have become. And it says they marched out boldly. Literally, the Hebrew says they went out with uplifted hand, high hand. We've seen what high, that phrase high hand when it refers to sin. That's the unforgivable type of sin in the Old Testament until the Day of Atonement. All year round, you can offer atonement and sacrifices for your sins that you didn't mean to do. But the sins you've done high-handedly, uplifted hand, in your face, like, I am doing this. Here I am. Well, this is what it says. That's what they did as they came out of Egypt. That's how they came out of Egypt. They didn't slink away in the night. They marched out boldly, high-handedly. God brought, the, brought Egypt to its knees, crippled the gods of Egypt, we saw that in the Exodus study. If you missed that, it's all on the podcast and on the YouTube channel. You can go to the Dojo website. You can catch all back up. You can do that over the break. That would be a great holiday break idea. He brought them out of Egypt high-handedly as judgment on the gods of Egypt. And there's more irony here. Verse 4, it brought them in the full view or before the eyes of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. All their firstborn. That's Egypt's job. Egypt's job was march our armies boldly while our victims or our nations or our enemies bury their dead. That was Egypt's, that was at the height of their power. That's what they did. That's why you went to Egypt if you were scared, if you needed help, if you needed an army to fight your battle because you couldn't, you go to Egypt because Egypt had chariots and horses and that's what you'd trust in. The chariots and the horses of Pharaoh. And then the enemies would be the ones burying their dead. Well, the Exodus, God flipped that all on its head. The whole theme of Exodus was God is king, not Pharaoh. And the gods of Egypt are no gods. Yahweh is God. So the judgments on Egypt, including all of the plagues, were attacks on each of the gods of Egypt. And it culminated in an attack on the ultimate god of Egypt, the most idolatrous god of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh touted himself as the firstborn. 
of Ra, the firstborn of the gods. And so through this, God pretty much showed Egypt in the eyes of all the world, no, no, this is the reality. This is the God of Israel, is the God of the universe. Me, Yahweh, not the countless gods of your pantheon. So that's all Exodus 12 is when that happened. Then, verse 5, the Israelites left Ramses and they camped at Sukkoth. They left Sukkoth, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. They left Etham, turned back to Pihaharoth on the east of Baal-Zephon and camped near Migdol. They left Pihaharoth and passed through the sea into the desert. This is all of Exodus 14. This is the Exodus right here. It doesn't mention the parting of the waters, it just as an aside. They just threw the sea. Letting us know that, that this, it was just a stage. The Exodus was just part of the journey. It wasn't the end of the mirror. You know, in all the movies, the parting of the sea is the end, right? And if you, any of Exodus movie, any movie about Moses, whether it's the cartoon Friends of Egypt, whether it's the terrible one that Ridley Scott made recently, or whether it's the Charlton Heston classic, they always seem to end with, you know, the water parts, they go through, rushes back, Pharaoh dies, the end. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the journey. And so it goes on to say, uh, then they traveled three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Mara. They left Mara, they went to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there, that's Exodus 16. They left Elim, they camped by the Red Sea. They left the Red Sea, they camped in the Desert of Sin. Desert of Sin is, means like Desert of Sinai. It's not the word sin like the sin you commit. That's just a weird English coincidence. They left the Desert of Sin and camped at Dovka. They left Dovka and camped at Elush. They left Elush and camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. That's Exodus 17. They left Rephidim and they camped in the Desert of Sinai. Pause. Desert of Sinai is where Mount Sinai was. That's where they stayed. In between verse 13, I mean, excuse me, in verse 15 and verse 16, all of Exodus, the rest of Exodus after chapter 19, all of Leviticus, and everything up to Numbers chapter 10 happens. All of Exodus 20 and forward, all of Leviticus, and everything up to Numbers 10 happens in between verses 15 and 16. Just setting, seeing where we are, seeing the journey. Then after that, they left the desert of Sinai and they camped at Kibroth HaTavah. That's where Numbers 11 starts and picks up. And that's where the rebellion cycle starts to come that we saw earlier this year, that we've walked through. So then it goes on, we won't read all the names because then it uh, goes on and lists the different places they came to. Um, and finally, verse 26, they left Ezion Geber and they camped at Kadesh in the desert of Sin. They left Kadesh and they camped at Mount Hor on the border of Edom. At the Lord's command, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. So this is the, the, the cycle that we were in. We just looked at this, you know, two months ago, I guess. But all of the stages, all of these place names... Libna, Rissa, uh, Kelohath, Mount Sefer, Harada, all these place names, these are all the encampments where they went. And these aren't cities. These are encampments. So some people are like, well, we don't know. Where, there's no evidence of any of these places. Well, yeah, they're campsites. The whole point of a campsite is you don't really leave evidence. I mean, there's temporary dwellings. These were stages that they went through, tracing their journey. But the main point of it is all of it was unnecessary. 
everything after verse 15 was unnecessary. All they needed to do, had their parents been obedient, was go straight from Sinai up into Canaan. A straight shot. Mount Sinai, down here in northwest Arabia, straight up. That would be it. But they didn't. They went up. They sent spies. The spies came back said, we can't do this. Two of them said, yeah, we can. No, we can't do this. So they said, we're not doing it. We're going back to Egypt. And that was the first rebellion. So God says, no, you're not going back to Egypt, but you're certainly not going to enter the land. You're going to die in the desert. And your children are going to enter the land. And so they wandered. Forty years. All around. And finally worked their way up through Moab, Ammon, Edom, right here to where they are now, and they're going to enter it this way. And that's the journey. They had a clear shot. And their rebellion is what cost them. But their rebellion is not the end of the story. We've seen that all year. When we rebel, God's not done. We may lose our part in what He had planned, but His plan's going to still go on. And God's plan for Israel is still going to go on, but that generation all died in the desert, including right here, Aaron, who was among from the beginning the rebellious ones. Think back to the golden calf. He's the one that made it. So, this is the closing of this generation, drawing to an end, but there's a note of hope. Verse 40, the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev of Canaan heard that the Israelites were coming. That's the events of Numbers 21. That's the king who came out to attack them and God said, and the people, the new generation said, Lord, deliver us and we'll, we'll devote this to You and this, we'll take them like a burnt offering. And, we'll, you know, and God gave them victory and they named the place Horma, which means destruction because of that. So there's a hope for the new generation. They are going to be God's army. They are marching by their regiments, as we would say. So then it goes on. There's some, what we've been in the last few weeks, they camped at these different places, and then they left, verse 48, they left the mountains of Abarim and camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There, on the plains of Moab, they encamped along the Jordan from Beth Yeshemoth to Abel Shatim. This is where they are. This is where they will stay until the book of Deuteronomy is over. So they will get to the spot. They're looking over the Jordan River. They can almost see Jericho in the distance. That's where they're going to camp because Moses has to do some final business before they can enter the land, including die. He's not going to go. So he's got to prepare the way. He's got to be what a good leader does. A good leader doesn't just say, well, I had a good run, I'm out. I'll coast off into retirement, everything's fine. No, up until his dying day, he was preparing the next generation. Because that's what leadership does. Good leaders aren't always, maybe even if they're not the best people, even if they don't get the job done in their time, they make sure that the ones coming after them have what they need to get the job done. It's the difference between a superstar and a good leader. You know, a superstar... Everybody recognizes they're a superstar. Yeah, they get the job done. They, get their, they, they do their thing. They do their thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're a leader. True leadership is determined by what happens after you leave. You know, after this Bible study, after I move on, whenever that may be, wherever God may take me, if this continues on, if you guys continue studying the Bible, even if it's not here, even if it's somewhere else, then... That will get, you know, I'll have done my job because that's what Steve did before me when he was the leader here. And that's what the pastor before him did. Leadership is always carrying on to the future, planting those seeds and prepping. So then, 
Verse 50. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images, their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. High places are the places of pagan worship where things like ritual prostitution and child sacrifice took place. Again, God's not saying drive out Canaanites because they worship a different God. Plenty of other nations worship different gods and God didn't say they must be destroyed. The Canaanites are on a whole different level. The Canaanites are utter depravity to the point where God said all the way back in Genesis 15, by the time your your descendants come to this land, their iniquity, the Canaanites' iniquity, these particular peoples as a collective will have reached their full measure. And it will, they will be ripe for judgment. So as we go into those, the conquest, that's what we're seeing is now God is driving out these people who as a whole, as a culture, as a religious entity, were irredeemable. That's very different from how He treated the other Gentile nations around Israel. Very different. So you cannot extrapolate His view of the Canaanites to his view of Gentiles. That's what skeptics do and that's what some fundamentalists do. That's wrong. God was not that way about all the other peoples. The Canaanites are a special exception because collectively they had become, they had come to the point where you just got to cut it off or you're going to lose the whole body. Surgery is needed because this limb is gangrened and it's got to go. That's the point that they reached. And we can't ever forget that. Otherwise, when we read the accounts, we'll start to say, oh, poor Canaanites, or, you know, oh, these, these poor Ammonites, what is God doing? Or the... it's, that's not the case if we take everything up until this point in Scripture seriously. But that's a whole issue that we'll look at when we get to Deuteronomy next year because there's going to be more on that. So he says, verse 54, uh, distribute the lamb by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They'll give you trouble in the land where you live. Here's the key. And then I will do to you what I planned to do to them. That's the key in understanding what God is doing through Israel. God is not, well, Israel, they're my people and everything they do is great, so I'm just on their side. No, God's not team Israel. God is team holiness and team covenant. So what he's saying is, the reason I'm driving them out is because of the practices that they do are so reprehensible in my sight. If you allow them to remain you will be drawn into doing those very same things and then guess what? A holy God will bring judgment on you just like He did on them. Why? Because God shows no favoritism. It's not ethnicity, it's action. It's not nationality, it's behavior. It's not who your parents are, it's who your covenant is with. And that's all of what's going on, what God's going to be doing. And, and this entire chapter paragraph, verse 50 through 56, that, those two paragraphs are, are basically a preview of coming attractions for the rest of Israel's history. 
they encapsulate the entire book of Deuteronomy and Moses' final speech that he's going to give. In fact, some say this is a condensed form of what he says in the entire book of Deuteronomy. This may very well be just like the overview of everything that we'll read next year. And it could be, you know, Deuteronomy could expand and unpack this speech, or they could have been speeches at a different time. Regardless, though, that's the message that Moses leaves the people with. If you don't drive them out, and, and by drive them out, he's not meaning, it doesn't mean, and we'll look at this next year, it doesn't mean every single individual person. We know from the accounts that it's going to be based on repentance. Why? Because one of those people, one of those Canaanites, ends up becoming King David's great-great-grandmother. All right? Who's also a prostitute. <laughs> so we know God's saying, no, it's not, he's speaking collectively. He's speaking of the people's identity as a people of Canaan. Not every individual. There's always repentance. And in this case of driving them out, that's the purpose. Get their presence, their religious presence especially, out of this land. Otherwise it'll lure you. And it'll become like, like, a, like a splinter in your eye. A thorn in your eye or a thorn in your side is the image. Well, what happens if you get something in your eye, like it, it's annoying, and you know, if you don't take it out though, what happens? It could fester and you could lose your eye. Or same thing with a splinter, you know, if you don't pull a splinter out, it can stay in there and fester and become infected. And in an age before penicillin, you can die. And that's what will happen with Israel. And that's another spiritual point that God makes, is if you let the little thing stay and burrow down deeper, don't be surprised when it festers into something bigger later. And there's a spiritual principle in that. Even though this is speaking about people and nation states in an ancient land, the spiritual principle that this is reflecting is still true today. You allow a little bit of sin, don't be surprised when it breeds death in a big area of your life. How many marriages have been destroyed by a little bit of flirty talk at the office? You know, a little bit of gossip. How many reputations have been destroyed? You know, a little bit of... It's like, no, no. Everything God does in the Old Testament is, is te- whether it's cleaning out your house of all the yeast before Passover, or whether it's driving out the Canaanites rather than allowing them to live, it's all teaching that same thing. A little bit of something, a little bit of yeast works through the whole dough. Jesus even used that image in a positive way to describe the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's not just Satan that works that way though. Eventually, the kingdom of God will spread that way as well. Little by little, like the mustard seed. So all of these principles get unpacked later in the Bible as it unfolds. But we got four minutes left and we're going to jump through chapter 34 because again, it's a list and it's a boundary section. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites, say to them, when you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance, you will have these boundaries. And then he goes in verses 3 through verses 16, he gives the north, south, east, west boundaries and delineates them. And the thing to know about it, you can read them if you want to, the thing to, to pick up in this chapter is Israel never realized those boundaries. Israel never achieved all of this land, ever. The height, the closest they came was at the height of Solomon. And even then, they didn't. Why? Because they allowed the Canaanites to remain. And they became thorns in their flesh. Solomon's downfall was what? Polygamy, idolatry. He took many wives and he brought in their gods and Israel crashed and burned. So this is, this, this is an unrealized promise. This is what Israel could have had had they been faithful. Now at this point, this generation, we don't know how it's going to end. 
those of us that have read further, Joshua, Judges, we know how it's going to end. Ultimately, Chronicles, we know how it ends. But at this point, there's this expectation. This is a huge territory. This is all of Canaan in the ancient world's reckoning. When the Egyptians talked about Canaan, these are the boundaries that they roughly had in mind. It was all going to be given to Israel. And then verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, these are the names of the men who are to assign the land for you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun. And appoint one leader from each tribe to help assign the land. These are their names. Caleb son of Jephunneh from the tribe of Judah. And he goes on to list the other names. All the rest of these names aren't ever mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. This is their claim to fame. They were the ones who God said, when you go into the land, you're going to divide it up by lot, by tribes, so, or by clans rather. So the tribes will have their own spots, but within that, how do you know which clan gets what land? It's going to happen by lot. It's going to be the larger get the larger, the smaller get the smaller, and then when it turns to individuals, you're going to roll the dice, basically. And I'm going to be through that process. That's how you're going to get the land. And you're not going to do it, Moses. You'll be dead. So Joshua and Eliezer are going to oversee the whole thing, but under them are going to be these ten names of the tribes who are crossing over. Now the two names from the tribes of Reuben and Gad, they already got their inheritance. So they're going to come back to the Transjordan after this is said and done. But these guys, these are the ones who are going to help you divide up the land. There's delegation. Moses is already, God through Moses is delegating this work because it would have been too much. And remember, there's no central highways, there's no telegraphs, there's no cell service, there's none of that. So that's going to have to be done at the local level. So these names of these leaders, and the text calls them leaders, lifted up ones, literally, these are going to be important people doing an important job, which is basically determining inheritance. It's a big deal. But the cool thing about this list, and we'll end with this, is the two names that are on it. Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two spies that brought back a faithful report. They were the only two spies who said, let's go take this land that God has promised us. They believed God. They're the only two adults that left Egypt that will set foot in the promised land because of their faithfulness to God. And by the way, as we've seen, Caleb is a Gentile. He's a Kenizzite. He's in the tribe of Judah, but he's part of that mixed multitude that came out and joined with them. You read his genealogy in Chronicles, and it'll tell you, yeah, he's, he's not an Israelite in the truest sense of the ethnic term. So 50% of the population that left Egypt as adults are Gentiles. Okay? That's always been God's heart, all the way back to Genesis 12. So that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Israel was never about ethnic segregation. It was about religious segregation. And it always included believers who turned from any tribe, language, people, nation, tongue, color, ethnicity, all of it. And that's nothing's changed. It's still that way. And that's why the church is of every tribe, nation, people, language. And that's why I love this Bible study because we have so many representatives of the ethnicities and cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic levels and all that stuff. So, but we're out of time. Next week, we're going to finish up chapters 35, 36. There's some last minute legal business to do. And then we'll go into Deuteronomy in the new year. You guys have a great week and we'll see you back next week.